This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Do you guys know why I love Podcorn? Because they make it so easy to connect to sponsorship opportunities for our show. Absolutely. All we need to do is surf through the sponsorships, find the ones that are right for us, and send a proposal over to the brands with whom we'd like to collaborate. And it's easy for brands, too. We just ran our own campaign as a sponsor for other podcasts. It just took a few minutes to set up the campaign, and soon enough... We were seeing amazing results. There are brands out there right now looking for podcasts just like yours to sponsor with formats like host-read ads, topical discussions, and creative integrations. So click the link in our show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. I'm going and- through puberty. A <laughs> <laughs> little late, but we all we all get there eventually, Scott. <laughs> it begins. <laughs> Dude, I want I if I'm going through puberty again, I fear for how low my voice will go. <laughs> I fear for how much porn you'll look at. My testicles <laughs> dropped 42 feet. <laughs> Anyhow, we are here with your weekly historical true crime madness. But before we get to the madness of the case, we should talk about the madness on over on our Patreon. We have our weekly bonus episodes over there for you. And there's just an amazing back catalog, well over 60 episodes that you can listen to. And we have so much fun. It's really a really great time. We tell each other stories that the other two don't know. And today, Scott not only told us a story that we didn't know, but he showed us a face that we'd never seen before. And uh, really, I wish we had uh, never seen. (laughs) It was was... never forget it. (laughs) Yeah, it burned into my into my memory, and uh, I'm I'm not happy about it, but it was funny as hell. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're having a really great time over there, and you should come over and join us. And you can do that at the five dollar level, and then we also have our monthly bonus episodes where we do something a little out of our normal realm, and we have a lot, a lot of fun with that too. So, this week we are talking about. Grace Brown and Chester Gillette. Now, I'm hoping I can pronounce the town where Grace came from correctly. Grace Brown came from South Otselic, which yeah, is in up, upstate New York. Yeah, I thought it was right. I tried tried to find like a YouTube video where they would actually pronounce it, but every single one of them was just like a short documentary about the town set to music with no voiceover. So I was like, damn it, speak people, come on. So yeah, it's in upstate New York. Uh, Wikipedia even refers to it as a hamlet. But even in the late 1800s, it was at that time it was growing. There were two churches, seven stores, two hotels, a photography gallery, and various like small mills and factories. Today it is quite small and has a population of 662. 
Grace Brown was born there on March 20th, 1886. She was the fifth of nine children. And this is kind of amazing. All of them lived to adulthood and even into their elderly years. I, I had to do the math. I had to. So uh, the average age of a brown sibling dying was 77 uh, until you factor in Grace and then it, that, that drops the average a little bit to 70. Way to go, you stupid woman. <laughs> stupid women bringing down the averages everywhere, damn it. Yeah, math and now this. With our uteruses and our boobs. Everyone knows the ovaries are lack the proper nutrients to fully nutritionate the brain. I'm a man. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, her, her mother, Betsy Minerva Babcock Brown, was bearing children for 20 years and quite successfully. This is, this is so rare for the, town, for the time. It was amazing. Her uterus is strong like bear. (laughs) It really was. Grace was said to be the brightest and smartest of all the brown children, which wouldn't you love to be one of their, the other eight siblings and have to hear and read that in the papers? (laughs) Like, okay, uh, thanks. I'm still here, mom. (laughs) No hopes for the rest of them. No, I kind of get that. I kind of get that. Scott, the... The the younger brother, the more interesting, intelligent, and talented. <laughs> <laughs> Look at so, him trying his hardest, poor dolt. <laughs> Grace had the nickname Billy because she loved the song Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey. And then so she took that nickname and went another step in pop culture, and she would sign her letters, The Kid. Ooh. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cute. So the place where she grew up, it was basically a dairy farm. And she both worked on her family's farm as well as the ones uh, neighboring them growing up. But around age 18, she decided it was time to, to hit the road and see see what was out there for a young woman in the early 1900s. So she left the small town farm life and went to the big city life sort of, in Cortland, which is uh, 25 miles away. It's known as the Crown City and was New York's 41st city when incorporated in 1900. Interesting fact, Smith Corona typewriters were manufactured there from 1960 to 1992. And yes, I know I'm being very liberal with my use of the word interesting. Well, I got (laughs) got something something else here Uh, from Cortland. Ronnie James Dio, uh, the front man for Black Sabbath, uh, has a street in Cortland named for him, Dio Way. Uh, we also have Charles W. Goodyear was born in Cortland. He, the railroad owner, Charles W. Goodyear. So I was thinking tires. Yeah. I think it's the, I think tires are in the family. Yes. Yeah. Because actually, um, Jackson and I, way back in the before times, we were we were at a bar and we were watching Jeopardy. And the final Jeopardy question was about, you know, who in- invented tires or these particular tires. And Jackson went with his joke answer of Joey Goodyear. And it was actually kind of correct. <laughs> and Sam Tripoli, comedian and host of the podcast Tin Foil Hat, is from oh. Portland. Do you, do you think that uh, if you go to DOA 
and and it's uh, it's nighttime. You might see a rainbow. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Um, we are so, all looking at Christy with shame and disgust. Yes, and that's fine. I'm used to it. So, <laughs> um, another uh, famous person born there, sort of, was Elmer Ambrose Sperry, inventor of the gyroscopic compass. So that was very handy in, in naval stuff. So he got a ship named after him. The population today is 19,000, but in the early 1900s, it was about 10,000 less. So they had a 9,000 population. And Grace moved there in 1904. Her sister Ada and Ada's husband both lived there. But actually, that situation didn't last very long. Uh, she lived with them for a little while until their only son died. He was just two years old. So they left town and she was like, well, I guess I got to, you know, either go home or I got to find a place to live here. So she wasn't going to go home. So she found a boarding house and it was an old farmhouse that was really close to her work. Like she could see her, her job from there. And her job was at a skirt factory where she earned uh, a few bucks a week was, was all the specifics I could get on that. Ladies, be sure to dip your needles in radium and lick them off with your fingers. The skirts <laughs> need to glow. Yes. Glow, skirts, glow. So then we get to Chester Gillette. Now, he was born August 9th, 1883 in Montana, was the oldest of five siblings. His family was uh, a little different from Grace's. His, they were very religious. His father was a preacher. He also did some like manual labor. At one point they, they moved in order for him to get a job cleaning timber, which I guess your wood has to be clean, I guess. It does. You really need to make sure it's squeaky clean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> make like sure to put powder on it too, or else it'll get sores. So, and her, his mother, uh, Chester Gillette's mother, was a Salvation Army missionary. So, yes, we can tell there's some, some heavy religiosity there. And they did move around a bit. They didn't just stay in Montana. They spent some time in the Pacific Northwest. And then in, by the time Chester was around 20, the, the family was actually in Hawaii. So really, really picking up and, and moving around instead of setting down stakes. If you want to know what Chester Gillette looked like and you don't want to go over to our Facebook page, first off, shame on you. Secondly, I want you to imagine if John Mulaney was Native American. That is what Chester Gillette looked like. Damn, you're good at this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it always startles me how like I'm like, okay, what's he going to come up with this time? And I'm like, that is perfect. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he spent some time uh, working out west, and at one point he was also a brakeman for the railroad. So he would do some jobs that involved some some very physicality and physical labor. And but his uncle owned a skirt factory in Cortland, New York. So his uncle brings him into the family business. Seems to be looking to bring him into management, and Chester is there. He's he's working. At the skirt factory, he's making $10 a week, which is $301 in today's money. And he was, uh, all the ladies were after him, and all the ladies' moms wanted him for a son-in-law. He was athletic, popular, good-looking. He was a catch, as they say. And he did 
go about town with a couple of girls. One girl he didn't go about town with was Grace Brown, and that was because he was keeping her his dirty little secret. They met up at the skirt factory, and in the spring or summer of 1905, uh, they started up a romance. She would have been 19 or 20. He was 23. But yeah, she was beneath him in terms of class and social status. So and he was probably really... in sexual position as well. Let's be honest. You know, the man was superior back in those days. Hey, baby, why don't we test out the, 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 the strength of the, the hem on these skirts? If you know what I mean, I think you do. And also missionary position, probably uh, very, very popular for the son of a missionary. Yeah, true. <laughs> He's like, I'm just, I'm just carrying on the family tradition. Listen to me. You people who think missionary is the only way, just for the love of God, lay down, let her get on top. Just There is nothing better than the sight of just a big old pair of tits bouncing up and down your face, people. <sighs> Not going to edit that out. <laughs> I didn't expect you to. I never do. So, yeah, Chester is, he, he, he definitely wants to get into uh, Grace's bloomers. And that's hard to do when there's a chaperone around, as would be the norm back then for a young lady and a young man. So he managed to talk her into dating without a chaperone. That was not the done thing, but she went along with it. Remember, she didn't have really any family in town to sort of help protect her in this manner or guide her away. And she's just a small town farm girl. I mean, she's very smart and bright and everything, but she still only has a very limited experience. And she, she's really smitten with him. And meanwhile, he's, like I said, he's, he's a bit of a gadabout with uh, the more upper class ladies around town. And he'll be seen around town with them. But if he's out with Grace, they'll be in some other town where neither of them are known. Now... We, you always see this when somebody's in a relationship, especially a young lady, and it seems like it might not be the most well-advised, and you're hearing some things about the guy. Her friends are warning her, and they're saying, look, you know, he's not, he's not being on the up and up with you. This isn't a great idea. And she's just, she's got the rose-colored glasses firmly in place, and she just doesn't want to believe that he could ever do that to her. So by October 1905, as the Buffalo commercial put it, he had, quote, accomplished her ruin. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's one of those phrases that you read over it and you get like further in the sentence and you're like, wait, wait a second. I need to go back because I just found an old timey euphemism I didn't know. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 So, as happens, especially when you have uh, not a lot of, if any, birth control available and a young lady who might not know a lot about all the uh, workings of her body, she ended up pregnant. She told Gillette the news in May 1906, and the next month she ends up going back to South Otselic and returns to the family farm ostensibly she's on vacation from she gets like a, a three or four week vacation from the skirt factory but this was really chester's idea it, it seemed that he thought she should go out there and her idea was well 
okay, he's telling me to go out there. I'll make some new clothes. I'll make my, my bridal trousseau. And then he'll pick me up and we'll go off to the Adirondacks and we'll, we'll, we'll go and we'll elope. But whether he actually proposed or even promised to propose is kind of debatable. He says he didn't, but at the very least, he was stringing her along. So she's in South Otsie, like he's still back in Cortland, and he's also hopping around from Lady to Lady, still being seen about town. And she sends him letters. These letters will eventually become the the, the source of many tears in a courtroom. Uh, I've got one here that I'll read to you. My dear Chester, I am writing to tell you that I am coming back to Cortland. I simply can't stay here any longer. Mama worries and wonders why I cry so much, and I am just about sick. Please come and take me away to some place, dear. I came up home this morning, and I just can't help crying all the time, just as I did that night. My headache is dreadful tonight. I am afraid you won't come, and I am so frightened, dear. I know you will think it queer, but I can't help it. You have said you will come, and sometimes I just know you will. But then I think of other things, and I am just as certain you won't come. I want you to write me, dear, just as soon as you get this, and tell me the exact day you can come. I will come back in a little while. I can't stay here, dear, and please don't ask me too much longer. The, the one that got me, there was, there was a letter where she was saying goodbye to her childhood home and wishing she could confess the pregnancy to her mother. And, oh, God, that one just ripped my heart out. Uh, it goes, I know I shall never see any of them again. And Mama, great heavens, how do I love Mama. I don't know what I shall do without her. Sometimes I think if I could tell Mama, but I can't. She has trouble enough as it is, and I couldn't break her heart like that. If I come back dead, perhaps if she does not know, she won't be angry with me. Yeah. yeah that one was so rough. Yeah. And and I related to this on so many levels because I was a dumb teenager that went and got pregnant. And I remember being terrified to tell my parents because they were going to be so disappointed in me. And they were. But, like, not – like, they they love my, my daughter. They love her. And they always have. And they've always been really supportive. But it was just that, like, I had this bright future – and for a few years there, I, I tamped it down to have a baby instead. Okay, I would like to correct you because my understanding of the situation is you are not a dumb teenager who went and got herself pregnant. You were a teenager who had a dumb medical professional tell you, a teenager, that you could not get pregnant. Yes, that's true. That's true. But still, like, I, I got pregnant when I was 17. Like, so, like, I kind of get where she's coming from with the fear of telling her mother. Like, I get yeah. that. <laughs> that, that's got to be terrifying. Absolutely. So, yeah, at first she's writing him these letters and he's not even writing back to her. So she's not even getting any response. It's just absolute silence from him. But other people are not being silent. They're telling her about all the fun that Chester is having back in Cortland. But she... She doesn't get mad. She tells him that she'll always be loyal to him. And, you know, even if she dies, he can do whatever he wants. And she's like, well, she, she's constantly coming up with excuses for him. Well, maybe it's just the Postal Service. They're having problems, maybe. Or he, perhaps he didn't write my address correctly. <laughs> you know, it's just so hard writing uh, some numbers and some letters. Maybe, maybe he got a paper cut. Uh, sealing the envelope and is fighting tetanus off in the infected finger. 
and he slashed the finger off and he's, he's bleeding now. I go, Grace, I'm coming for you as he drags himself along the road. Or maybe he's a bastard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's the second one. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah. So finally, eventually, he does write back, but he basically just says, don't worry, and, uh, quote, think less about how you feel and have a good time. You're going to be passing a watermelon through nature's Play-Doh fun factory. So don't worry about it. Have fun. And uh, that passing of the watermelon will also mark upon you for life absolute shame and scorn by all of society. So your, your ruin is now complete. You're welcome. Have a, have a good time. And he also says, hey, you know, I can't come get you very soon, so just going to have to keep waiting. But at this point, she does get a little fired up, and she kind of tells him how it is. <laughs> I do. I really admire her here, in a sense. Uh, what words have I received from you since I came home to encourage me? You tell me not to worry and how I feel and think less about how I feel and have a good time. Don't you think if you were me, you would worry? And as for thinking less how I feel, when one is ill all the time, some days not able to get downstairs, one naturally thinks about oneself and the good time. If one can have a good time when one is ill and stays in one's room dressed in a kimono all the time, I fail to see where the good time comes in. Finally, so, finally, she's getting a little bit of chutzpah. Yeah, yeah. And she basically tells him her life is ruined and in her mind, so is his to an extent. And even though the world may mostly blame her, she she knows he carries some blame. And then there's there's a little hint of something darker that comes up in her letter. The world and you too may think I am the only one to blame, but somehow I can't, simply can't think I am, Chester. I said no so many so many times, dear. Of course the world will not know that, but it's true all the same. So either he wore her down or he raped her. That's those are those are the two options here, but she she did it wasn't like you know, it wasn't yeah. like she just immediately dropped the panties and went for it as soon as he glanced her way. She was trying to stay virtuous and not have her ruin be accomplished. Now, I don't know if you guys saw this, but I actually found one source that said that he did offer to pay for an operation to get rid of the problem. You'll be seeing my yes. good friend, Dr. Fetus Deletus. <laughs> yes, I did see that. And he, he, one source said he actually took her to a doctor in an attempt to do this. And the doctor said it was too late at that point. Oh. An interesting thing I see in my, my constant uh, scanning of, of newspapers from, from the olden times is I'll find these, these things that look like maybe they're murders. And we even have like body parts being washed up and, and, and on, on shores and stuff. Or, you know, like young women dying and then they, they track it back and eventually you get to the point where you're like, nope, this is just more botched abortions. Ben's mm. back alley abortion clinic. Bring your own hanger. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, so that particular letter she wrote, she was really wrote it in the heat of the moment when she said, you know, I'm not the only one to blame. I'm not having a good time. What the hell are you talking about, you idiot? <laughs> and the next day she really had regrets about it. But her dad had already put it in the mail. So Good. she, Good. yeah, well, she immediately wrote a, 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 another one full of apologies. 
It's it's she had a moment of standing up for herself, but she wasn't quite able to continue that in the light of day. So she kind of puts me in the mind of like a pet rabbit who's been yelled at too much. Like every once in a while, it'll it'll latch out and bite you, but then it acts scared. Yeah, that very much feels like like how she's how she's existing. Yeah. And his letters are basically, it is just constant flimsy attempts to dodge the subject, to stall New phone, her. who this? <laughs> yes, very much that. No, there was no phone back. New parchment, who dis? <laughs> and like trying to throw the ball in her court. Like, hey, you know, I don't have any ideas, but if you come up with something, just let me know. You know, just, just, just write me a letter and I'll maybe respond to it. Probably not. At some point, she goes into town and is overheard talking on the phone. They did have some phones, you know, not at her house, but <laughs> they had one somewhere in town. And it's later assumed that she's speaking to Gillette and she's accusing him of being false to her, saying he deceived her and that she was going to insist he keep his promises. And a witness to this phone call said that when she hung up, she was weeping. So she's going through right just a serious rough time here. And finally, after she's been out there about four weeks, it seems like he can't just pretend it's not happening anymore. Because if if people it's gonna get around eventually, you know, it, and his reputation will suffer a little bit, not nearly as much as hers, but at least a little bit. So he's like, all right, well, let's do this Adirondacks thing. He's not really specific about marriage, but she seems to be very, very encouraged by this. But again, he's wanting to do this with lots of secrecy. He he doesn't want to pick her up at home. He instead has her meet him 10 miles away. And she really thinks that her future is, is going to come together here. And so she, you know, she says goodbye to her family. She she writes uh, in in her last letter to him. I don't know if the, I, I think your letter that you read, Scott, was her letter to them, and I have one that she wrote to him. Oh dear, you don't realize what all this is to me. I know I shall never see anything any of them again, but don't worry about anything, for I will manage somehow. Hmm. And then she gave varying stories. She told her family she was going back to Cortland. But her friends, she said she was going to Big Moose Lake and would be joined by her beau. And she had gone there and, you know, started sewing immediately. By the time she left, she had a whole new wardrobe from all that sewing. And uh, there were a lot of people who said this was intended to be her, her trousseau, you know, her, her wardrobe that she took into her new marriage. Meanwhile, Chester told his uncle that he was going to go upstate, spend a week or so at Big Moose Lake, and on Monday, July 9th, he left Cortland. Grace goes into town. Uh, her uncle is escorting her to the train, but instead of the train heading for Cortland, she does a little switcheroo and sneaks on the train heading for the Adirondacks. So she has, she has her family fooled into thinking that she's just going to go back to her job but she manages to, to sneak onto the, the train for the Adirondacks. So I just want to kind of set the atmosphere here of, of how maybe she might be feeling. 
relieved, incredibly relieved, the kind of relieved that kind of like softens your bones. You know, it's so intense, excited, loved, sick, also probably pregnancy sick as well. (laughs) A little bit of that, I'm sure. But she finally thinks that she's going to get everything she wants, everything she needs. And a few days ago, the future might have seemed so terrifying and bleak. And now it's bright and shining and she must feel like she's just walking on air. And there's also something I thought about just just looking forward to the novelty of traveling and, and, and traveling with somebody that she really loves, somebody that she's fought for. So everything looks really rosy and happy for her in this this brief moment. And I like to think she probably practically skipped onto the train as she was, you know, sneaking onto it. So on on Tuesday, July 10th, 1906, a couple named Charles Gordon and wife register at a hotel in Utica. This is about 50 miles north of South Otselic. And they do leave the next day without paying. So short on cash a little bit. But while they're at the hotel, he does inquire about where he can go to find a quiet place in the woods where his wife can rest. She's tired and she needs just quiet and rest. That same couple is seen on the train uh, the, the day after they were in Utica, and they were said to look noticeably happy and just very romantic together. Like they seemed like they were, you know, practically honeymooning. Wednesday, July 11th, same couple arrives in Big Moose, New York. That's a little over 50 miles north of Utica on the morning train. They're said to be respectable young people, and pretty much the first thing they do when they get into town is ask a stage driver to point them to a hotel that rents out boats they want to go take a little a little boating ride around big moose lake and the stage driver is like yeah just just head on over to the glenmore hotel mr morrison there will hook you up they get to the glenmore and the man is said to be pacing a lot he looked like he had something all in his mind. So all that happiness they had been seen with was was not really there anymore. It seemed like the relationship was kind of strained and he was being a little bit of a dick to her. So around uh, lunchtime is when they're registering at the hotel, but they skip lunch. Uh, do you guys have the name that he registered at the hotel with? I it forget was it. Carl Graham. The reason Graham, he was right. using these names... It was he would use C and G as the initials because his luggage had his monogram C E G, Charles something E Gillette. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that's right, Charles Graham. I saw it a million times in the newspapers, and it just skipped right out of my head. See, I had Carl Graham in my no, mind. yeah, Carl Graham. I think I, I, if if I said Charles, I misspoke. Oh, his middle name remember. was Ellsworth. Oh, that's right. Ellsworth, Ellsworth. yes. Ellsworth. <laughs> yes, quite. Oh, Jesus. My testicles are freshly shorn, and <laughs> the butler has wiped my ass severely. I finally so, have the rectal confidence to wear white pants. <laughs> there. They register at the hotel, uh, and it's under Carl Graham and Grace Brown. So her name is there. 
But uh, it's lunchtime, but they skip lunch. They rent a boat. They head out onto the lake saying that they were going to take some pictures and then come back for supper, after which they would head back down to Utica on the night train. He had with him a suitcase with a tennis racket strapped to it, although there were some reports that she carried it, so maybe they they shared that you know a, a burden occasionally. And they also had a camera with them. When they get the boat uh, to the shore, she, she picks some water lilies, put them in the buttonhole of her black silk jacket, and he was said to be pretty familiar with boating, it looked like. He, he seemed confident, competent, and he looked like, quote, an experienced oarsman. So not somebody who, who would be likely to have a lot of trouble out on the water. But uh, that's the last that this young couple was seen together. They're heading out onto the boat, onto Big Moose Lake. And then the boat is not returned when it's supposed to be. So Mr. Morrison over at the Glenmore Hotel is like, well, maybe a search party is in order. So that is how they find the next morning the boat overturned near shore. And then ominously somewhere nearby, they find a woman's jacket. So they continue the search, looking for the two people who took the boat out. And that afternoon, they find her body. She was floating in eight feet of water, about 250 feet from shore. Her head and face were bruised. There was a bad cut over her right temple. And that was rather curious, as the area that they were in, it was said to be, it was smooth as glass. There were no bad rocks. There was, you know, no way she could have gotten this just in in some sort of boating accident. So they're like, eh, maybe we need to look into this a little bit more. They start kind of investigating, and they also start dragging the lake looking for the young man. They dragged it until dark, and then the next day, they start up again. They went through the entire day. They did find uh, the hat he'd been wearing. The lining was torn out, so any identifying marks like a a label or anything like that were missing. They didn't find his camera, his tennis racket, his suitcase, or him. And so just a fantastically named coroner, Coroner Coffin. (laughs) It's beautiful, guys. It's it's perfect. It's so wonderful. (laughs) It's like he was born for it. (laughs) Right? Oh, he says that unless the young man's body surfaces, he's going to call it a murder. And they were pretty easily able to, um, you know, connect the body to the Grace Brown who had registered at the hotel and rented the boat. Um, And she had registered as Grace Brown of South Atsilic. And and like we said, he had registered as Carl Graham of Albany. So he's also obscuring the city as well instead of Cortland. And, you know, it's just the bare minimum is is, is using an alias. But that's, that's apparently all he's willing to do is the bare minimum. So... Grace's father, Frank Brown, does come and uh, identify his daughter's body. And everything really happened so fast, like the finding of the body and everything, that Mrs. Brown probably knew her daughter was dead when she received a postcard Grace had sent the very morning of the day she died. Doesn't it just fucking break your heart? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Dear mother, 
I am having a nice time. We'll write you tonight, Grace. I can't imagine already knowing that my child is is deceased and getting mail that they had sent so soon beforehand, you know? So they start looking for Carl Graham of Albany as, you know, he had registered. And the Syracuse Herald reports that he was well-dressed and looked like a college student. Now, there was a report from three guides, like I imagine kind of like forest and, and woods and lake guides, you know, wilderness types, who saw a man around 8 p.m. on Wednesday, the day of the faded boat trip. And when they found out Carl Graham's description, they were like, yeah, yeah, pretty sure that was him. Now, earlier he'd been wearing a straw hat, and now he was wearing a slouch hat. But uh, they saw him about five miles south of where the body would be found the next day, which is about a two-hour walk from my calculations. But he was, he was hustling. He seemed like he was in a hurry. There was also a man fitting his description seen a quarter mile from the body asking the, this was the next day, he was asking the way to Eagle Bay. And so he's kind of going, he seems to be just going in circles in the woods. He, he was seen around Eagle Bay and then he's asking, he, he gets away from Eagle Bay and then he's asking how to get back there. So it just seems like he's wandering the woods like all night. And the district attorney and the sheriff's department in Herkimer County, which is where Big Moose Lake is, they found out about all this from the paper hmm. the day after the body was found. <laughs> yeah, so communication here is obviously lacking a little bit. If the coroner's like, there's been a murder, and it's the next day the DA and the sheriff find out from the paper. <laughs> I think we need to maybe improve the communication channels a little bit. They're checking out other hotels and lodges in the area, but they can't find anyone under the name Graham, of course, and they can't find anyone quite yet who matches his description. And so when they talked to Grace Brown's family, they said, well, as we thought she was going back to Cortland to work, she's mentioned a Mr. Graham, but we don't really know anything about him. Who they do know about is Chester Gillette, was the young man that she had said she was going to marry. And that seems to be, as far as I can tell, how the police connect Gillette to the man that she had been last seen with. How they make that transition from Carl Graham to Chester Gillette. And so word gets to Gillette's uncle, the owner of the skirt factory, and he says, you're not going to find him he was he was probably with grace brown I'll, I'll admit that but he would never be the type to hide he has a fantastic reputation he's a good boy and so he probably drowned that's that's the attitude he's a good boy he's probably dead yeah yay <laughs> then they find out that someone had sent a package of laundry addressed to chester gillette uh, they sent it to Fulton Chain, which is about six miles south of Big Moose. They tracked that package down and pretty easily found Gillette at a hotel in Utica on July 14th, where he was registered under his own name. You're a big old they... dumbass, aren't you, Chester? Yes, he is indeed. That's murder 101. Never use your real name again. <laughs> yeah. 
They brought him to the Big Moose Hotel where the boat rental was. And several people there identified him as the man who'd gone out on the boat with Grace Brown. Not really doing any lineups here, so it's a little less legit than we would expect in our modern day. But uh, they weren't. The lineup wasn't super uh, well well proliferated throughout law enforcement at that period of time. So this was this was good enough. Several people, the hotel manager, several other people were like, "Yes, this is the guy." He was said to be in a pitiable condition. He conceded that yes, he was Chester Gillette. And then he broke down and went along with the arrest without any struggle. And all they found on him when he was arrested was just a little bit of change in his pockets. That was really all he had. But uh, the arresting officers would have a little bit more than change in their pockets. They got $250 each from the district attorney. That's $7,500 today. Ooh. Ooh. There's your stimulus check. There you go. <laughs> That'll stimulate the economy. That's what they should have done. Everybody gets triple stimulus bonus if you turn in somebody who raided the Capitol. <laughs> yes, that's a brilliant idea. I love it. Thank Let's you. do it. Thank you. <laughs> so the papers were, they were on to what was happening here. And I mean, what was happening here, even before it was confirmed, practically before he was even caught. One paper said, it is, it is expected that an autopsy will reveal his motives. They're saying right there that everybody expects that the autopsy will find out that Grace Brown was pregnant. And that's why Chester Gillette killed her. Mm-hmm. And that was another sentence that I, I, I had to read it a couple times before I was like, oh, because they're so... The language is so, like, kind of muted. And they also, like, bury that... <laughs> information and so you have to like read it a couple times to really get the you know sort of like old-timey implication (laughs) i'm saying old-timey a lot this episode i don't know why i'm enjoying it i guess so (laughs) we're getting the name out there (laughs) yes through our own podcast (laughs) this episode is sponsored by best fiends Even the most passionate true crime aficionado needs a break from all the murder and mayhem once in a while, fun though it may be. I feel that. And when I need a break, I just whip out my phone and play some Best Fiends. The bright colors and absolutely adorable characters are such a refreshing breather from the grim world of true crime. Speaking of characters, right now I'm trying so hard to beat the Hall of Fame challenge so I can get Popstar the Axolotl. Yay! The game has new levels, events, and challenges all the time, so you never get bored. And I guess it's that time. Level check! I am at level 1566. I am at 2819. Whoa. <laughs> Impressive. I am at level 910. Where is Jackson at? Um, I believe he's around like 2,500, I think. Trying to catch up to you. Yeah. And if anyone else wants to catch up with Christy, then you should download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. His story 
tends to shift. Uh, he starts out saying that they were in the boat. He stood to get his hat and then the boat capsized. Grace fell out. He didn't try to save her because he was afraid that she might drag him down with her. And then that after- crazy bitch is going to drown me too. <laughs> Bitches be <Exactly>. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Bitches be drowning me. So he show didn't- title right there. <laughs> Bitches be drowning me. Yeah. He said when they asked why didn't you come forward and say something, he was like, "Well, I was scared that this exact thing would happen. You know, like look, look at the situation I'm in. You you arrested me, didn't you? So maybe that's why." That is not the road to take. What you do is you say, "You as like the boat capsized. You remember it striking you in the head, and whenever you came to, you were on shore, but you didn't know who you were." The only thing you had was like an ID, so you knew your name, and you were just trying to make your way home with what little change you had left. See, like, that would have been kind of genius. Like, he really didn't think this through. It's like, kill the pregnant girl, and that's as far as he got. Yes, very much so. His plan stopped there. (laughs) See, everybody would have believed it. It was... It was common knowledge back then. A sharp knock to the head uh, makes you lose your memory, and then another sharp uh, rap to the head returns it. Standard medicine, really. (laughs) So if they just knocked him on the head one more time, his memory would come Mm -hmm. back, it would all come flying back, and that's all you needed to do, and it would be confirmed. Yeah, Yeah, like he literally could have gone to shore and hit himself in the head with a tennis racket, and it would have been believable. He had a bump. Actually, just boom, right there. It hit me right there above my hairline. You wouldn't want me to cut my hair, would you? I'm a man. (laughs) My gorgeous John Mulaney hair. My gorgeous John Mulaney hair. Jesus, man, just take my word for it. That's real (laughs) sad that she died. How's the child? Oops. Uh, I mean, how's her face? Can't help it. I have a brain injury. So... (laughs) Yeah, he said after after all this happened, he just wandered the woods since he was out of money. And when he finally came out of the woods, he started contacting people, trying to get them to send him $5, which now is what, you know, you, you, you get from your great-grandmother in a birthday card, but back then was 150 bucks. So that'll, that'll get you a few dinners. <laughs> so then he had another story that she was clinging to the boat, and he was like, I'm going to push the boat to shore. You just stay put just hold on to it and we'll get you to shore and then she didn't hang on to it and she drowned then his other story was that she he he wasn't there at all when it happened this all happened somehow completely independent of him and then finally uh he seemed to be saying well this this was my favorite one this was my absolute favorite one just the image of it you want to go ahead with it oh yeah sure sorry i'm just I'm, i'm excited he says, we talked a little more. Then she got up, jumped in the water, just jumped in. Yeah. <laughs> so are the hot dogs good? Yes, dear. Stands, turns, hop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, she couldn't swim, but like, this was like eight feet of water. Right? So even if you can't swim, you could just walk on the bottom to the shore. Like well, <laughs> that, that was... 
Yeah. Granted, we don't know exactly for sure where it happened because even if there's a slight current, it could have drifted her body in the in the 24 hours or so between when this happened and when they found her. So it's hard to say exactly where it happened. But probably yeah. not, you know, there could have been a huge drop off in the lake, maybe, but maybe it was all like, you know, six, eight feet, you know? See, like, I'm really confused as to why she wasn't more concerned for herself. Right? When he, he was like, let me put my luggage over on shore and I'll be right back with this tennis racket. <laughs> like, I want to know why she wasn't more concerned. Like, <laughs> Well, A, the rose-colored glasses. And and she really wants to believe in this future that they can have together, which they can't have together if uh, she if he kills her or if she even believes for a minute that he would kill her. My dearest mother, Chester says that he's going to be right back with a tennis racket. I wonder what he needs a tennis racket for in a fucking boat. <laughs> you know what, though? I saw another thing, though, that that she might not have believed that they were getting married. But another reason she may have brought all of her wardrobe is because she was going to a home for unwed mothers. Mm. So I mean, even that is she did have those rose colored glasses. I think she also kind of thought like this was like her last hurrah with him before he dropped her off at a home for unwed it, mothers. It might have been like a hope for the best prepare for the worst type deal, too. Yeah. 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 But she obviously did not look at the full picture for prepare for the worst here. Yeah. I don't think prepare for the worst <laughs> is what she thought. The her case scenario was a home for unwed mothers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. think her brain was letting her uh, actually prepare for the worst here. So now two young ladies from Cortland come forward and they're like, oh, well, we met up with Chester Gillette on Friday and we hung out at Bear Mountain. And let me and tell you, little Chester works quite well. There's no <laughs> bereavement downstairs, if you know what I mean. And I think you do. <laughs> Both of our reputations were well ruined, front and back. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, and they talked to the district attorney about, quote, various remarks made by Gillette on the trip calculated to show his nervousness and the haunting fear which disturbed his mind. He made a number of remarks concerning Miss Brown, which at the time were not considered more than casual, but in the light of later events, they are very significant. Ooh, that gives me the creeps. That happened to me once. Mm. I, I worked with this guy, and, and him and another guy I worked with, we went to the mall together, and this guy was a teacher in the area. And some of his students come up and, you know, they're attractive, you know, 15, 16 year olds. Right. And they kind of go, oh, hello, Mr. C, blah, 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 blah. And they walk away. And me and the guy with don't think anything of it. But he kind of looks at both of us and goes, man, every year harder and harder to be a teacher. Eh? 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 You know, and we just kind of went, ah, 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 inappropriate joke. Yay, male, male companionship. About four years later, he was actually busted for having sex with one of his 16-year-old students. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and it's just kind of like that. Yeah, like awkward joke, but it wasn't really a joke. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is. It's definitely creepy. Yeah. So the autopsy comes back that she had been struck in the, quote, struck in the eye and mouth and pounded on the top of the head before she went into the water, end quote. 
They said the facial bruises were definitely from a man's fist and the head injury was from some heavy but somewhat elastic instrument. And that is very likely the tennis racket we have referred to a bunch. They didn't know that at the time, although they may have had their suspicions and it didn't make it into the autopsy. But that does kind of become, you know, the sort of uh, the murder weapon du jour, which it's a tennis racket. Who'd have thought, you know? (laughs) I wonder what kind of sound a tennis racket makes as it's cracking a human skull. Crack? Did you, like, did you guys read through, like, the autopsy report here? I read newspaper reports that mentioned it, but I didn't read the actual autopsy report, no. So, the blow near her left eye was sufficient enough that had she survived, it would have caused permanent blindness. Jesus. Oh, my. (gasps) Uh, Blow to the head three inches above the ear of sufficient sufficient severity to cause unconsciousness if not more serious consequences um and uh let me see she was well nourished five feet one inches weight about 105 pounds lips were swollen and discolored tip of the nose presented uh as somewhat flattened so like he i don't know if he broke her nose but he definitely hit her in the nose enough that it caused some damage um Knocked one of her teeth out, which, Jesus Christ. Yeah, this was, this was rough. I mean, like, he beat the shit out of her. Yeah. And had she survived, she would have been permanently blind in one eye and probably have at least a concussion, if not permanent brain damage. Wow. Yeah, he really, really went to town. This is... It seems when you when you say, oh, he murdered her with a tennis racket and then pushed her into the lake, it sounds almost genteel. But no, this is a man who beat his pregnant girlfriend and, and, and murdered her. <laughs> One of the injuries to her head actually penetrated the skull and into the brain matter, <gasps> uh, producing mm. a brain clot in her brain about the size oh of a God. nickel. Jesus. It's always stunning to me. And you got you got to remember... Each one of these injuries happened pre-mortem. Yeah, like she was still alive when this happened. Right. It always it always surprises me how much damage the human body can actually take before it gives up. There there was a murder that happened back in the 80s uh, up on top of Mount Davis in Pennsylvania where my dad got mixed up in it because he might have found the murder weapon at one point. Uh, he had found a screwdriver uh, in, like, by the side of the road, and this girl had been stabbed several times with a screwdriver, beaten severely, uh, had, to be, had to be identified by her dental records. Her face was absolutely a mess, and the coroner looked at everything and went, this woman would have lived if the uh, killer wouldn't have jumped on her. He, oh, my God. He jumped on her and ruptured her liver, and that's what killed her. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they actually, they, they believe that she was actually in shock when she was put in the water. So At like, least. If she was even conscious, she would not have been able to get out of the water. At least in shock. She wasn't in much pain, if any at all. Yeah. There's that at least. Yeah. Yeah. Probably given that beating, I think they didn't know whether she was conscious, but I'd say consciousness probably pretty unlikely with that kind of damage. God, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, the autopsy also stated that she was in a delicate 
delicate condition which may have been the motive which prompted young Gillette to take her life. Delicate condition, meaning that he had accomplished her ruin and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Amber, you said she was 5'8 and 105 pounds? 5'1. Five, 5'1. One. Five, five, one. One. Okay. All right. That seven it's inches makes a big difference. Thing. Yeah, she was a petite little thing. She was she was about five one and one hundred and five to one hundred and ten pounds. Okay, I was gonna say for for what like maybe like two three months into the pregnancy, that's uh, that's awfully like no no weight gain at all if if not weight loss. But but that height that's that's that sounds like it's probably okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And usually you don't gain weight um, until around the the fifth month. You really start putting it on. So mm -hmm. it's not abnormal for her to look and, and seem like the same size as before. And she sounds like she was probably a pretty petite little thing mm -hmm. to start with. Now, the authorities are already saying that they had a great case. And they were sure that the murder was intentional from the moment he took her out on the boat. If not before. The wonderfully named coroner Coffin said... There is hardly any doubt that Miss Brown was taken out on the lake and deliberately murdered. It appears that soon after their arrival at the Glenmore, Gillette was seen studying intently a map of the woods while Miss Brown paced to and fro on the veranda. District Attorney Ward said, We have got this fellow, Pat, and there is no chance of his breaking the chain of evidence we have built around him the past three days. Gillette deceived and murdered this girl, and I shall prove it and we have some da ward is now my favorite speechifier <laughs> i have some <laughs> some parts of his speeches that are just un unbelievable so they find letters from grace to gillette in his room back in Cortland, said to be rather incriminating as to motive although also the fact that she was pregnant was also incriminating um, but still with all this going on, by the 18th, about, you know, a week or so after he murdered her, he's said to be having no trouble in jail, sleeping or eating, although he still won't talk about Grace Brown. Now, the night before the inquest, there was, there was an incident. There had been some witnesses giving testimony to the district attorney, and he took those witnesses to the jail so they could identify Gillette, one of those Witnesses was Frank Brown, Grace's father. And this goes about as well as you can expect from the paper. Quote, as he approached him, Mr. Brown began to change color and tremble violently. He made a rush for the prisoner with uplifted hand and exclaimed, you villain, you killed my daughter. The undersheriff, which is always a funny word to me. I don't know why. Maybe because it's very close to undercarriage. And that is a funny word yeah. to me, too. Yeah. Um, it sounds like it. very German, doesn't it? The Untersheriff. I'm picturing him on the bottom of the sheriff pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> That's a weird way of saying deputy. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. So the undersheriff had to hold Mr. Brown back, and still Mr. Brown tried to get free and attack Gillette, who was rushed back to his cell. After this, Mr. Brown, who was 50 at the time, had a nervous collapse, as they put it. Probably, a, like, you know, severe anxiety and depression, maybe even some shock, something along those lines. So, uh, in I, August... I certainly try to kill anybody that killed one of my children. 
Oh, I cast no blame on Mr. Brown. None whatsoever. He was probably mad that he didn't kill the little fucker. Because that's what I would be feeling. (laughs) Yeah, that was the nervous collapse. Yeah. You you people need to be careful in fucking with people from Pennsylvania. Everybody here owns bulldozers. There's no such thing as a shallow grave. (laughs) My dad has one in his yard. Right? (laughs) I I drove by the other day and I went, holy shit, wonder what construction work is going on here. And then it hit me. No, I bet Rob killed somebody and they're just burying them. We're leveling the ground under 20 feet of dirt. Yeah, sure you are. <laughs> yeah, I always wonder why we don't seem to have so many uh, so many murders in this, this area. And then I think maybe we have just as many murders as everybody else do. We just hide bodies better. So. Mm-hmm. We're really good at it. We're really, yeah. really good at it. Yeah, we are. If you see a sign saying, Phil wanted, they're not trying to make things level. Oh, no. No, no. There's one just down the road from here, and I'm I'm positive <laughs> what they're trying to do. I know what they're trying to do. <laughs> so, so yeah, a special grand jury is called in August. 125 witnesses with proceedings expected to take three days, and at that point, it was still unknown whether Gillette's family was going to help him out with an attorney. So, when the grand jury did indict. He got two public defenders, but he somehow also ends up with a former senator, A.M. Mills, who's actually close friends with the district attorney. And now I get this, that people who are in the same line of work, even if they're on opposite sides, they can be friends, but it still feels kind of conflict of interesty, you know, just a little bit. Yeah. So his friends say he's not going to go for the insanity defense. There was, at that point, a lot of speculation that Harry K. Thaw was going to use that in the Stanford White case. We have an episode on that. It's episode number something or other. I don't remember. I didn't look it up. <laughs> so I think I mentioned it in the last episode. So <laughs> It's in there. It's just in there. Listen yeah. all. You can find it, yeah. Oh, and by the way, just really quickly, if you happen to have started listening to our old episodes and found that you could only start at episode 24, I have fixed that. It was a little problem with the settings in our hosting. And so now episodes one through 23 and, you know, all of that is now available. So if you were one of those people who was going through our back catalog and you were stopped, you can now start again and from the very wonderful beginning. So, And if you're listening to our back catalog, I really suggest going over to Patreon, throwing down five bucks and listening to some of the back catalog there. There's some good shit going on there. Yeah. It really is. The tinies are, are awesome. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. yeah. So so I just wanted to point that out for anybody who, you know, I, I felt bad once I realized that the, the setting, that little obscure setting was keeping people from hearing earlier episodes if they wanted to. So I just wanted to point that out in case anybody needs to know that information. So... So yeah, the Stanford White case was going on at that time. It was, it was, I, I believe the murder was actually maybe a couple weeks to a month or so before uh, the Grace Brown murder. And so yeah, that was being just splashing across the front pages. So he's not considering the insanity defense, but he is considering the suicide defense defense that she. He's considering going forth with saying, no, she actually took her own life by suicide. So one really interesting fact here is that as trial approaches, his family is really nowhere to be found. One sister visited him in jail briefly, 
but he was intentionally keeping most of his family in the dark. His sister only found out through newspaper accounts, but his parents were too religious to read newspapers. How fucking religious is that? That is fairy. fairy. The Lord says no movable type. Yeah. <laughs> so... And then the relatives who do know, like his uncle uh, back at the skirt factory, say it's just too heinous a crime and they can't help. So he doesn't even really have family on his side here. And then we have the usual of a uh, quote from the newspaper. Hysterical women are beginning to become aroused by the trial. Yeah, they said it. They said it. And Gillette is the recipient of many letters. Some woman sent a large bunch of chrysanthemums. Well, just be happy. The hysteria got you ladies the vibrator. <laughs> I guess we have to be grateful for something, right? Right, right. I'm Doc feeling hysterical, doctor. <laughs> My hand's getting really tired. Let me just wind this up. <laughs> I love this description on how he was doing in jail and the description of his quarters there. This is this is infuriating and ridiculous and yeah. He has spent all his time in reading. His cell, or rather two communicating cells and a portion of the corridor set apart for his use, he has converted into a suite, neat and picturesque. On the walls are 150 pictures he has put up in artistic arrangement. They are all of women. He has cut them from magazines and other publications. Many of them are actresses. Some are of refined girls. And all of them portrayed are pretty. Most of them being of the light-hearted, laughing kind. Why would you put up pictures of ugly women? No, he put up pictures of pretty women. Yeah, I know. Of course he did. Why would you put ugly people on your wall? Why like, would you make your wall like the male version of a... a, a, a 14-year-old's locker in 1998. That's what I was it was it was like his version of boy bands. Yeah, yeah, to go into the Tiger Beats and the Teen Teen Bop, I think it was, and I think there was also just Teen Magazine and cutting out pictures of you know. Okay, I'm going to Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I'm going to I'm going to hip you guys to this. Here's what it was. This is <laughs> it's why masturbation he... material. Exactly. They wouldn't give him porn. It is his spank bank. It is. He, he just put his spank bank on the wall. He put a spank bank on the wall because obviously that this dude is some sort of fucking sex addict and the thought of him only having one vagina for the rest of his life drove him fucking nuts. That's why he killed this woman. I'm not saying it was right. Far from it. But just, Jesus Christ, people, be, be happy with who you have. Yeah. Unless, unless that person is an asshole. Then, then, then get rid of them. Yeah. I'm looking at you, like Chester Gillette. Anybody that puts their spank bank on a prison wall and strokes it for the guard. Toodles. There's Toodles. also the fact that he they made him a suite. They made him a suite. He has two cells and then the corridor between. So he has, in jail, nobody ever has anything that can be called a suite. Martha Stewart probably did. Yeah, true. Martha Stewart was <laughs> okay. a hard-ass bitch. She's a badass. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, very true. So the coffee 6 9 was giving up everybody. Martha never snitched at all. Martha knows what snitches get. Mm-hmm. And it's she not scones. Little, little known fact, she has to do a lot of heavy makeup to cover the teardrop tattoo for killing that one person that snitched in jail. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the trial starts in November of that year. Again, fast justice in place here. The murder was in July and the trial is by November. And on the very first day in the DA's opening statement, there's a big sensation when he pulls out some information that other people weren't privy to. He announces that he'll be calling eyewitnesses to the murder. Say what? Yeah, that ended up being a little overstated. They're more like ear witnesses. This, George the fish. This is dead fish on the stand. <laughs> yeah. So a woman who was fishing across the lake from where the body was found heard screams around dusk the day of the murder. Couldn't see it, but could hear it. And her brother also was was there and and heard the screams. He tested. He would testify as well. And the prosecution called up other girls from the skirt factory who confirmed that Gillette and Brown would meet up in secret, but never in public, but that he was happy to gallivant around with other wealthier girls in public. One testified that Gillette was constantly hanging around Grace's table at work, and even when his uncle told him to stop, he continued. So he was sniff, sniff, sniffing around all the time. Her father takes the stand and the entire time stares Gillette down. Even during that, Gillette shows no emotion. And we when call they that bring it. Given the Joseph Blore. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. And even if you're not on our Patreon, just go over to our social media and scroll back a bit and you'll find the picture we're referring to and you will have regrets. You'll have regrets. So It yeah. will scar itself into your brain. But we just recorded that one that night, so it's still very, very close in our minds and we, we wish that weren't the case. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Um, even when they bring out a big portrait of Grace, uh, it's said to be life-size, when they bring out her trunk of clothes that she'd taken with her and Mr. Brown broke down at the sight of that. All of this is happening and Gillette is showing no emotion. It is announced that Gillette is going to take the stand in his own defense and that he was sure he could get the jury to believe him that Grace Brown died by suicide. But before they can do that... They bring in the love letters found in his room and in her trunk, and they read them in court. This was big news, and it really seemed to affect people very deeply. So they start off loving on both sides with one written by him in 1905 when she was home on vacation, so the year before the murder. And he said he didn't know how he could get through a single week without her. However, one of her letters after the pregnancy when she was back at home seemed to threaten to expose him if he broke his promise and didn't marry her. So motive, 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 motive. I'm going to tell dad. I'm going to tell your uncle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, quote, the letters, this is from the newspaper, the letters disclosed the fact that Gillette had tired of his sweetheart who was about to become a mother and wanted to get rid of her. The girl clung to him in the end and begged him to save her from the shame of her life. This did actually emotionally affect him 
he had some tears while the letters were read. He would have to because the whole rest of the courtroom was also practically openly weeping. So for him not to at least pretend to cry would have been the most damning thing possible. I'm pretty sure the jury would have at that moment just all stood up and unanimously said, guilty. You've got to do like the head down, like give, yeah. give like the, the eye, the hand over the eyes. Do you want and do the, like the shoulder shrug like that? You've got to, you got to. <laughs> Amber's if, doing a really good fake cry right now. It's if, amazing. I, if, I'm, I'm totally buying it. Look, women are really good at fake work. crying. Not to be sexist here. Women are really good at fake crying. For the men, what you do, exactly what I said, put the hand over, give a sniff, and then just start to chuckle about you getting away with the murder. And <laughs> it's going to look uh, like you're crying. I, actually, no, like a legit <laughs> quick tip. Uh, wear a mint lip, like chapstick, mm -hmm. and at some point, cover your mouth with your hand, and then wipe underneath your eye and it will make you actually cry yank out a nose hair that'll do it <laughs> a little harder to do that surreptitiously <laughs> yeah stick a few fingers up your nose i'm pretty sure people are going to notice but you could easily if you have like a mint chapstick touch your mouth like oh god and then touch your eye and it will make your eyes water it, like don't put it in your eye but like uh, wipe underneath your eye and the mint will make your eyes water and so you can cry like actual tears. And it's so believable because I've been in front of a judge before and it's so handy to be able to cry. Um, so just throwing that out there, folks, if you are, are ever on trial and you need to cry. There you go. Qu quick tips from the pros here on Old Tommy <laughs> Grammy. So from, from a newspaper account of this day. There was scarcely a dry eye in the courtroom when the womanly, simple, but eloquent letters that seemed to come from the grave had been finished by the prosecutor. Day after day, this pretty but plain little country girl, fuck you, pleaded in her letters for Gillette to stand by her in her trouble. And when his replies seemed cold and unassuring, she would appeal to his manhood, chiding him only to ask his pardon in the next sentence. Jesus Christ, to make her sound like a fucking cavewoman. I know, right? It's horrifying. Like this, this, the letters were good. It wasn't like, you know, Gillette make grog pussy wet. It wasn't anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> so this whole event, in addition to the people in the courtroom, just the public in general, it really affected them. Gillette had to have a guard uh, of six officers when he was leaving the courtroom that day due to, quote, excitable bystanders, which really were people who were like, should we hang him? We should hang him. We'll just do this ourselves. We don't need the judge or the we'll jury right or anything now. like that. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it right now. Just somebody go to the hardware store, buy a rope. Save a lot of taxpayer cash. Yeah. Yeah. And it was uh, it was so uh Everybody was so hyped up about this that there were rumors that the state militia would be called in to keep order. So, yeah, that's emotions were running. That. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Emotions were running high. The courtroom was over capacity at that point, but like they stopped doing that as of the next day in order to try and keep things a little calmer and said that only people with tickets would be admitted. It is... Really funny to watch Amber sneeze while muted and with broken headphones. I'm yeah. sorry. That was just hilarious. That was excellent. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, one of, I, I snapped it off. So, like, it came forward towards my eye and then flipped around outside. Like, it was. <laughs> it is the podcaster equivalent of a titty flopping out. 
I'm a fucking cartoon right now, guys. So the prosecution brought in the boat. And there was still in the boat what they said was and what was assumed to be Grace Brown's hairs clinging to it. And, of course, they didn't have any way of confirming that, but they they matched, you know, in length and colors. They were pretty much like, probably. And some of the hairs were broken, which seemed to imply that some violence had happened. He had, at the very least, grabbed her by the hair at some point, something like that. At this point, this is such a sensation that over a thousand people are showing up for the trial. And if you wanted to get a seat for this big public event, you had to be there before 7 a.m. So eat your breakfast quick. I really like I wish there was like scalpers back then. They're like, <laughs> I have a ticket. Anybody need a ticket? Five hundred dollars. <laughs> so the doctors who did the autopsy, a couple of them took the stand and said the cause of death was, quote, shocker concussions resulting from blows. Well, Amber went over that earlier. So um but uh, this, this actually gets me. If immersion in the water did occur while there was still life, the chances of restoration were so few that immersion was unnecessary to produce death. So even if he hadn't tossed her in the water, the beating he gave her would have killed her. So, likely. Yeah. Would have likely killed her. She had like probably like a 5 to 10% chance of, of recovering, <laughs> which isn't yeah. that great. But there is still a chance. And here's the thing that gets me. Because even if, like, okay, so say that she was brain dead. They may have been able to sustain her long enough for that baby to live. So this isn't one murder to me. This is two murders. Because she's about four months pregnant. Anything after 20 weeks can be viable. Like, still risky, absolutely. But if they could get her to 30 weeks, like 10 weeks, that's the, a baby. This is how pregnant she was. A back alley abortion doctor said no. Yeah, that's true. true. Although, I, when, you, when you say, like, oh, this wasn't one murder, this was two, you do kind of bring in some super thorny issues that are more Supreme Court territory. No, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But I found out I was pregnant when I was about 20 weeks. And when they went to do an ultrasound to find out what was going on with me, because at the time we still didn't know I was pregnant, they're like, oh, it's a baby and a girl. Holy shit. So, like, that's what point she's at. At 20 weeks, you can tell if it's a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. Like, she she's halfway through the fucking pregnancy. <laughs> so it's still, like... When you're halfway through and they can tell you what, what it's going to be, I'm going to say that that's, that's like a murder. Yeah. Well, we don't know. We don't know four months. Three, maybe. And it, it even... Four in my notes. Okay. I never was able to find an exact um, month. Uh, well, because the, the one guy brought the uterus and the baby in, uh, in front of the courtroom. Yeah. Good Lord. I bet that smelled great. <laughs> so, so <Get> anyhow. <laughs> oh, just like they showed us in health class. Um, Let me show you how we're going to get the baby out of the uterus. So you guys can all see that there's a baby in here. Steve, George, you grab the ovaries. I'm going to squeeze the uterus. <laughs> 
So the defense, of course, in cross-examination, tried to point to other findings with the body that may have indicated drowning. They were really trying to pull this drowning angle. The autopsy doctors really were like, eh, sorry, not going to help you. And then, of course, like like Amber said, they tried to, the, the d- district attorney, there was a little argument about the fact that he wanted to bring in the fetus that had been removed from Grace Brown's body during the autopsy. The defense naturally objected to the, this, and the district attorney ward said, I would like to exhibit the girl's entire body here. I have the right to take it from the grave if I want and bring it here. So uh, with that bombasticness and entitlement, he won, and the fetus was admitted to evidence, which... I don't know how often that happens, but that seems like it's, it surprised me that it happened at this time period. I imagine the Scott Peterson case. Yeah, but in, in this time period, yeah. in, the, in the 1900s, when they're still talking about him accomplishing her ruin in the newspapers and in, saying she's in a delicate condition, they can't even say pregnant. Right. They can't even say with child. I mean, they are so talking around it that it's not even funny. So for them to actually bring in physical evidence of the pregnancy, it seems very surprising that the, uh, any judge did that. So. Doesn't, doesn't this entire case feel very Scott Peterson-y? That yeah. was actually brought up in one of the articles that I, I was reading. Yeah, yeah, it does certainly. There's there's definitely uh, hints of that here. So yeah, the the DA won that battle, and then finally Gillette takes the stand. His story is that they went out on the lake. She picked some water lilies. They were just floating around reading. At one point, they came ashore, and that's when he left his suitcase and camera there, which was how they didn't get wet. Then they got in the boat again. He said at one point, you know, they were talking about what they should do about their future. And he was like, you, you should definitely tell your parents. And she said, no, I can't possibly. And in that attempt to convince her, he upset her very much. She stood up and, you know, just jumped in the water. And then, then the boat capsized with the movement of her jumping in the water. He managed to come back up and get to shore. But at this point, his story is he never saw her. Uh, after you know the boat capsized so he just took his suitcase and uh the tennis racket he said was just in his way so he put it under a log so it wouldn't get too wet you know like you do like you do don't want to ruin a good racket i i did go back through my notes i did find a little bit of a timeline so in may of 1906 grace revealed that she was pregnant yeah that's what she told him but like she there's the question of how soon would she have figured it out in that day and age at least six weeks, usually. Yeah, that's think. what I'm thinking. Yeah, like it so, might need it might need two missed periods, for, and especially somebody who has a little bit of a hard time facing reality, it might need two missed periods for her to be like, yeah, 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 maybe something's not uh, not yeah, not as it, uh, it should be. I'm thinking she got pregnant in March, didn't tell him till May, and then was killed in July. Yeah, that would put her at about four months. But again, we're quibbling about stuff that really is like, you know, Supreme Court and fetal personhood. And I all that. need <laughs> to know what type of gore to have present in my brain. That that one month, four month to five month, it's going to be very different. A fetus looks very different in those two months. So on cross-examination, which was over three hours long and relentless, but it said that he stood up very well to it and seemed like basically he was fresh as a daisy when he went to the stand and fresh as a daisy when he left. Didn't even seem to break a sweat. He admits that he lied. He admits that he swam back to shore and left her to drown. And the DA, when cross-examining him, is like, 
Um, so you you grew up in the West and a little bit in Hawaii. So you, you swam. He's like, yeah, you swam in the Pacific in both San Francisco and Hawaii. So this is a strong swimmer who could have saved her if that were the true story. And that whole thing, his time on the stand went so badly that it was rumored his attorneys were trying to get the district attorney to change the charge to murder in the second degree for a plea deal, which plea deal is coming along at this late stage in the game is really does kind of reek of desperation. So uh, even one of his lawyers says he is a poor, foolish boy who talked too much and who told too many tales for his own good. Uh, they really a, do seem that's your own lawyer fuck but they really do seem to be trying to in infantilize him like in, in order to to really pronounce his youngness to the, the jury and the public in order to try him make to make him seem less culpable you know like oh he's just a poor boy you know didn't know what he was doing so that that seems to happen a lot there's a lot of calling him a boy even though he was 23 when this occurred and his defense basically just brought in character witnesses uh, whom the Buffalo Courier called of comparatively minor importance. So they have like a college professor from Cortland. They have the minister at his church, people just speaking to him as being an upright boy. And one kind of fishy thing was they supposedly had a doctor who had seen Grace Brown's body just after she was fished out of the lake and that doctor had said, oh, well, she showed signs of drowning, but no signs of violence. They subpoenaed him and he came to town. But then at the last minute, they said, Nep, go home. We don't need you. It seemed like his account really wasn't lining up with what they wanted for their defense. And then some witnesses from the factory testified that Grace Brown would get upset about Gillette seeing other girls and would talk about how she wanted to die. Mm -hmm. Which I feel is just high emotions and being in love with somebody who you're not really sure if it's reciprocated or not. And you hope it is, but the proof is seeming to be pretty obvious that it's not. You know what, though? They actually had a ton of case files about her referring to suicide. Yeah. A ton. Like, she was saying it all the time. And so they had all these witnesses that were saying one of her coworkers found her crying and she said that she wished she would die and hoped she would not live to see the sun rise again. So she was super depressed and, and definitely like letting it be known that she mm -hmm. was super depressed. And so that's what they were trying to do. Be like, hey, anyone that's ever heard her say something like that, come on. Like, come on. Yeah, it just doesn't quite do enough to erase the beating that she took because she definitely didn't give that beating to herself. Yeah. No, she did not. So. <laughs> The district attorney's final statements uh, were that, you know, Grace Brown was a sweet girl of purest thoughts and Gillette was a rat. And if the jury acquitted him, they'd be cheating the electric chair of a monster. Uh, this Gillette like, breaks down that. in tears for. Giving compassion to the electric chair. Don't, don't do this <laughs> yeah. to Sparky. Sparky Sparky's deserves good. this. He didn't do anything. Sparky so. did nothing wrong. <laughs> and this this next part of uh, the DA's speech in his final statement brings up some of that boy stuff that I mentioned, 
Uh, he really pokes at how the 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 defense attorneys were trying to really emphasize the youth aspect. This inexperienced boy who pulled out a heavy boat but was too fragile to pull a 100-pound girl 15 feet to safety. This poor, inexperienced boy. He entered the Cortland factory muscular and experienced and got next to the minister, next to the church, next to the college. This inexperienced boy. He takes front rank in the church. That's his mask, the lie he tells. Not to the jury that time, but to others. He sought out the fair flower that came under his gaze at the mill, and one by one he plucked the petals until its pure life was gone. This inexperienced boy. Night after night, he sought the destruction of this pure young flower that grew on the hills of South Otsilik. It's very sarcastic, and I like that. <laughs> so, Sarcasm is welcome here. This was another amazing bit. Uh, he references the... The letter I spoke about earlier where Grace Brown, you know, said, uh, I said no so many times, but the world will never know it. D.A. Ward said, the world does know it, little girl, even if you had to sacrifice your life beneath the fangs of this monster to let the world find it out. This man is cathartic for me. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like it. So the jury deliberates and after five hours... Chester Gillette is found guilty. He accepts this uh, verdict with no change of expression or not even so much of a twitch. The, after the verdict, though, he takes a scrap of paper and a pencil and he wrote, Father, I am convicted and had it sent to Denver where his father was. And he said he really didn't expect that result. He didn't expect to be found guilty. So, um, yeah. He's sentenced to the electric chair, insists that he's going to appeal he applied for reprieve to the governor. The governor said no, despite the new evidence that Grace tended to have seizures. And that was what happened when she was on the boat. She had a seizure, capsized the boat, drowned, whatever. Because, okay, how can this be new evidence? He spent all this time with her. We had testimony from all these factory people. Nobody mentioned it. Why, why wouldn't... Why wouldn't he have said something about it in all this time? If, if, if she, in fact, had a seizure and he sat there and watched her had a seizure and then fall out of the boat or capsize the boat, why didn't he say that instead of, oh, well, we were chatting and then she just stood up and walked into the water? Like, it's so stupid. Yeah. He's a terrible liar. And yeah. he's like, oh, wait, I just thought of something that might have been good here. Yeah. Yeah. So before the execution, he spoke at length with what are called his advisors. I'm sure there's a religious advisor. I'm not sure who else, if it's legal or not. But while they didn't say he confessed, they put out a statement saying the following. Because our relationship with Chester Gillette was privileged, we do not deem it wise to make a detailed statement and simply wish to say that no legal mistake was made. In his execution. <laughs> he must have confessed to them. Hmm. Must have. So, but we can't be satisfied for a second because this bastard puts out a last statement all about accepting Jesus Christ and finished with, there is not one thing I have left undone which will bar me from facing my God, knowing that my sins are forgiven and that I have been... I mistyped that something and Frank in my talks with my spiritual advisor and God knows where I stand. 
My task is done. The victory won. I really hope that things in the afterlife are more of a Zoroastrian bent where they believe that like whenever you die, you go through the fires of Zoroaster and whatever's good in you can't be touched and whatever's evil in you burns away painfully. So a fairly decent person like Christy or a slightly less decent one like Amber or me, uh, we deal with a little bit of pain, but we get through to paradise. Whereas somebody like Chester Gillette just burns until he's nothing more than a fucking amoeba. And that part gets to be happy. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I think that sounds good. I, I hope that after Chester Gillette was executed on March 30th, 1908, that that is what he faced and he became an amoeba. As far as his physical remains are concerned, he was buried in Seoul Cemetery and in New York and placed in an unmarked grave. I think Seoul Cemetery is in New York, although possibly he was sent to somewhere where his uh, family was. But uh, but it, it's really, you can't really find it. It's possible that a road was even paved over it. Now, as for this case, uh, it's, it's legacy. This became the premise for Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy. That was his first big success on the market. If you've read Theodore Dreiser, most likely you've read Sister Carrie, is I believe the name of it. I read that at some point during my English lit education and uh, actually, this has been giving me an urge to go back and reread it because it was, it was kind of it, it was kind of progressive for its day as far as uh, women and what we can and can't and should and shouldn't do. So that was that was nice. But he had Theodore Dreiser had spent a long period of his life as a journalist. And from his observations as a journalist, he saw that a certain type of crime in the U.S., was very common. So, quote, the ambitious lover of some poorer girl who in the earlier state of affairs had been attractive enough to satisfy him both in the matter of love and her social station, but nearly always with the passing of time and the growth of experience on the part of the youth, a more attractive girl with money or position appeared and he quickly discovered he could no longer care for his first love. And of course, you know, when that first love became pregnant, which was generally another factor, there would be, you know, the the in, in, almost inevitable, it seems, murder. So, so yeah, and uh, Unsolved Mysteries did the case. Uh, so it's been on there. And, yeah, that's, that's my stuff on the Chester Gillette murder of Grace Brown. You guys have anything uh, I didn't hit? Fucking Lake's Haunted. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I knew. <laughs> I left that to you. I left that to you. I, Thank I knew, you. I knew you would get that. Thank you. Yeah, fucking Lake's Haunted. <laughs> Scott Scott bursts into room, cocks a shotgun. Scott, what the fuck are you doing? Legs haunted. <laughs> what? <laughs> Legs haunted. <laughs> um, there are some tales that Grace can be seen walking around the lake, just soaked, looking very, very sad. She's sometimes seen thrashing about in the lake uh, like she's drowning. And sometimes people look over the side of their boats and see her under the fucking water. <gasps> oh, fuck me. Fuck me. She's even seen in, in like hotels and homes around the area. She doesn't even stay at the lake. She, she travels. Uh, she'll, one of her things that she does is she turns off the light and, and she causes 
witnesses to be speechless, breathless, uh, unexplained terror, even even more so than whenever you're seeing a ghost. Something something just really kind of gets into you and and crushes you down. Um, there there was one went witness, and I hope I get this name right, but 99.9% chance I'm fucking this last name up. Uh, one witness named Rhonda Boussolet, uh saw Grace and experienced a sense of despondency and her three friends that were there, same damn thing. She says, and I quote, I walked into the staff lodge, straight up the stairs with my hand out, reached for the string, which is how to turn on the light. As I approached the top of the stairs and just before I was ready to turn on the light, a feeling came over me that somebody was right there. More or less, I stopped in my tracks and I really just didn't move. I didn't have an overwhelming feeling of fright, but something definitely or someone was there, and it just kind of took my breath away. All three of them, my friends, had the exact same story. It lingered for just a few seconds and then moved away. All three of them saw the ghost, but I didn't see anything myself. I felt somebody was right there. It was just a strange feeling. Ugh. Like the one that gets me is just like you're going fishing, you're out in a boat, and you look down, and you see her in the water staring oh. back at you. Fuck that. Yeah. yeah Fuck I agree. that. Like I'll I'll go into a haunted house any any fucking day of the week and I love it. I'll take a tape recorder if I get an EVP going like I'm gonna rape you. You know, that's whatever. That's fine. But I'm on a fucking lake in a boat and I look down and there's a moist bitch staring back at me. Yeah, no, done. I I do not care for your phrasing there. <laughs> not one bit. Not one bit. <laughs> but you know what? The town itself is like, stop coming here. Like, why are you guys doing this? So there's like a festival every year on the anniversary of her death where people like flock to this town and they're like, stop, just stop. You're celebrating the murder of a poor girl. Do you what the fuck is wrong with you? So there is an interesting phenomenon in paranormal activity where if you start to do like housework, the ghost that's in the house gets more active. There, there has been a ton of occurrences where nothing, nothing happens aside from like, oh, there, yeah, we heard a knock every once in a while to full-blown bitch, invisible bitch, slap me. Just because, oh, we're going to knock down this wall. So do you think, do you think the dirty town secret is every year, whenever all these people flock to this town, it kind of riles Grace up. And for like the week after everybody leaves, they have to deal with her, her drowned ass walking down the street, flipping the bird to everybody. <laughs> that will be fantastic. <laughs> okay. So I think we should go the week after the anniversary and see what happens. Absolutely. <laughs> I know what we're doing in July. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Amber, anything else that we missed? Nope. That's it. Okay. I would like to give a shout out to our newest patron. I am going to sing your name. Vicky Newton. Love your figs. Drag that one out. What? I said I love her figs. <laughs> Poor woman probably hears that so yeah. much. If it makes you feel better, Vicky, 
I have a cat, my newest cat. I have five of them floating around here. My newest cat is named Newton. I named him after Isaac Newton because the little fucker experiments with gravity on a near constant basis. <laughs> Nothing is on the shelf anymore. Everything is on the floor. That little bastard. <laughs> that is hilarious. So thank you, Vicky, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Patreon. So, and if you're not the uh, Patreon type, if you just want to leave a buck or two on the nightstand, you can do that using our email address at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com over on PayPal. Don't forget about our merch. We have some good shit going up over at uh, oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. And uh, Scott is doing some great things over at the social media. You can find media related to the cases uh, over there. So go over and check out Old Timey Crimey on Facebook and Twitter. And there is the usual. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. And again, not just us, your other favorite podcasts do. It helps all of us, especially the independent people like ourselves. So uh, if I do have any more bullshit, I can't remember what it was. So what are we doing this week, you guys? I, I have no clue. Probably more 3D print. More of the same. Oh, actually, Tuesday, I get my first jab. Uh, I'm getting inoculated on Tuesday. So awesome. looking forward to that. I was able to get in because I'm in the first group. I'm obese. Yay fat. <laughs> I, uh, I have my daughter's birthday this week. So I will be doing lots of, of cooking. I just got done making two dozen Oreo truffles. Um, I have decorating of those to do tomorrow and then I'm making an Oreo cake. Um, the truffles will decorate the cake. Uh, and then I also have uh, house hunting, which is a thing we're doing now. Yay. Very exciting. Well, there's no houses actually for sale, but I, uh, I basically have to obsessively check every single website that sells houses several times a day, just in case something pops up so I can go view it immediately. So that's on my uh, my radar too. <laughs> what about uh, you? Um, well, uh, I have a story due to Chris Garcia for the drink tank uh, tomorrow, and I have written four paragraphs. So uh, I should probably get to work on that. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah, it's uh, he and I are both like very much deadlines are fungible at the moment uh, because just there's so much chaos. And yeah, there's that. I'm, I'm definitely going to finish it tomorrow, though. I've, I've got the whole thing written in my head. I just need to actually transfer it from my head to the page. And so, yeah, there's that. And yeah, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much it. Oh, I'm getting a new laptop this week. So. Yay. What you getting? Um, I'm getting a Dell, actually, dude. I'm getting a Dell. Right on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Every four or five years, we say that instead of like, you know, Jackson, like shopping for birthday presents, he'll shop for laptops and he is the king of laptop shopping. So he always gets really, really good deals. So he got me a good deal on one and I'm very excited for, for it to arrive this week. So I'll be celebrating my birthday early, which is good because uh, we're coming up on my second quarantine birthday and mm. I'm not so super excited about that fact. I'm just happy your, you're getting your the second first quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just happy you're getting the PC. I know this is going to piss a lot of people off, but Max suck a big dick. I do. Okay, so uh, my my photographer friend, who of course like photographers tend to very much gravitate towards towards Apple products. He has uh, a very very good uh, Mac that is. Uh, I every time I've used it, it's been very like smooth, and it has some like really I think um, innovative features. 
but I just can't get used to that operating system. I've never been able to make it make sense fully in my head. So yeah, I've always been a PC person and I always will. It's always it's like I, I always have to use Microsoft Word. I can't even switch to open office because I am definitely old dog. You cannot teach me new tricks at this point as far as some of the technology I use. I can learn new technology that isn't like I learned how to use like our, our, our editing software, you know, to, to use that. But if it's something I've been using for 20 years, no, I'm, I'm stuck there. 30 it's, years. Oh, my God. My, my boss uses Macs at his work, and he just sucks a big old Mac dick. And I'm just <laughs> like, every fucking day, it's like, and he's got like three monitors hooked up. Every fucking day, two monitors don't work. One does. Now this monitor works. Uh, now they're all blinking on and off. And, oh, we need this program. Well, we could have got it for free over on, you know, free for... Uh, for a PC, but you've got a Mac, so it's going to be forty-two ninety-five for a version that was out seventeen years ago. Yeah, yeah, all right. So, all right. I guess on that fuck Mac note, um, <laughs> that is us for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening to our filthy words. We appreciate it so much, and we will see you next week with some more historical true crime. Bye. 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 My sources this week are Chuck Imperio on NewYorkUpstate.com, Wikipedia, OCVS.org, Adirondack.net, KateWelshover.com, Jessica Ryan Doyle on the Utica Observer Dispatch, the Syracuse Herald, the New York Tribune via the Library of Congress, and the, I'm just going to say, a variety of newspapers via Newspapers.com. If you want the actual names, it's in the show notes. <laughs> My sources this week are two articles from Wikipedia, one on Chester Gillette and the other on the murder of Grace Brown, heathermonroe.medium.com, murderpedia.org, and adirondackexperience.com with a little extra help from the Mysterious Universe podcast. I have almost identical sources to Scott, murderpedia.org, wikipedia.org, medium.com by Heather Monroe, and the newyorkdailynews.com by Mara Bobson.